Hello, and welcome to Law Among Peoples, a podcast by Intergentis, the McGill Journal of International Law and Legal Pluralism. We're a student-run, web-based journal dedicated to promoting constructive dialogue between and about the many sources of normativity that make up the international legal framework. You can visit our website at www.intergentis.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-G-E-N-T-E-S dot com to check out our current issue, browse the archives, or contribute to the conversation. Our current issue deals with tangible and intangible ownership in the international sphere. In this podcast, we'll contribute to that theme by discussing the protection of intangible cultural heritage in the international context. We'll explore the objectives of intangible cultural heritage protection regimes and the challenges that they must navigate to achieve those objectives. In order to better understand how these structures impact communities on the ground, we'll look at Katajaniak, the Inuit throat singing practice, as a concrete example. We'll speak first with Katajaniak practitioner Evie Mark, who will help us to understand the importance of Katajaniak to Inuit communities, why it needs protection, and what concrete effects the official recognition has had. After that, we'll speak with Louis Gagnon and Marie-Pierre Gadoua, who worked with the Avatak Cultural Institute in support of their application to have Katajaniak officially recognized. They'll tell us about what that process involved and suggest some ways in which the protection of intangible cultural heritage could be improved, both in Quebec and globally. But before we welcome our guests, let's talk a little bit about what we mean by intangible cultural heritage. According to UNESCO, cultural heritage is the legacy of physical artifacts and intangible attributes of a group or society that are inherited from past generations maintained in the present and bestowed for the benefit of future generations. Intangible cultural heritage, then, encompasses such elements of heritage as oral traditions, performing arts, traditional knowledge and skills, ritual, and other social practices, rather than physical objects such as artwork, tools, and buildings. In fact, some scholars have argued that even physical objects are best viewed as manifestations of intangible heritage, since they owe their creation to the distinctive knowledge and practices of a particular cultural group. This is the departure from previous approaches, where physical artifacts were the primary object of preservation efforts, and intangible practices were protected only indirectly. For instance, the Convention Concerning the Protection of World Cultural and Natural Heritage adopted by UNESCO in 1972, dealt exclusively with monuments, buildings, and sites. It wasn't until 2003 that a comprehensive regime protecting intangible cultural heritage was implemented at the international level in the form of the Convention for the Safeguarding of Intangible Cultural Heritage. This convention requires that countries signing it identify and maintain inventories of the intangible cultural heritage present on their territory, and proposes methods they can use to safeguard that heritage. It also establishes a register of good practices and distributes resources to governments, 
and sometimes directly to community organizations to implement these methods. Rather than focusing on preservation for its own sake, the convention emphasizes the role of communities in safeguarding their own heritage. It also stresses the importance of intangible cultural heritage for cultural diversity and sustainable development, both within originating communities and externally. Like most international law instruments, however, the 2003 convention still relies heavily on national governments to be effective and gives them a substantial amount of leeway. To really begin to understand the global framework around intangible cultural heritage, it is useful to consider the approaches taken by individual countries. First, there are some countries whose constitutions explicitly mention the protection of culture, of heritage, or even, in the case of Bolivia, of intangible heritage specifically. These tend to be very recent constitutions, and generally in countries with significant indigenous or other minority populations, whose heritage may be at greater risk. Other countries have achieved indirect protection of intangible heritage by using more general constitutional norms, such as the protection of freedom of religion or official affirmations of multiculturalism. In some countries, intangible cultural heritage may receive a certain amount of protection from intellectual property law. Australian courts, for example, have turned to copyright law to prevent the unauthorized reproduction of Aboriginal designs. In fact, the World Intellectual Property Organization has been working since the year 2000 on a convention that would standardize intellectual property protections for intangible cultural heritage at the international level. However, whether such a convention would be broadly accepted internationally, let alone succeed at providing adequate protections to individual communities, remains to be seen. A more relational approach based on an obligation to negotiate with each individual community to achieve their own particular vision of heritage protection is favored by some governments. Panama's Law No. 20 is an example of this approach. It grants indigenous peoples exclusive collective and perpetual rights over their intellectual and artistic creations and explicitly applies their own customary law to the protection of these rights. Finally, many governments opt for the softer protection provided by policy measures, such as government investment in education about intangible cultural heritage. This is the core approach of the UNESCO Convention, which promotes intangible cultural heritage by maintaining official lists and offering awards and other funding to communities. The choice between these different approaches will largely depend on the particular context and goals of a given government. Intellectual property approaches emphasize the economic aspects of intangible cultural heritage and have the advantage of utilizing pre-existing legal mechanisms, minimizing the need for legislation. However, they don't really respond to non-economic concerns, such as the need for education and recognition. Furthermore, these protections are rooted in Western frameworks of ownership and individual rights, which are often in conflict with the normative paradigms of the communities whose intangible heritage they aim to protect. Relational approaches that obligate governments to negotiate with communities respond better to these concerns, but tend to be more costly, more politically sensitive, and can take longer to bear fruit. Policy-based approaches, meanwhile, are unlikely to generate much controversy, 
but fail to create the kind of hard protections that may be necessary to prevent the heritage of vulnerable cultures from disappearing. One aspect of ICH protections that we found particularly interesting is the role that they can play in combating cultural appropriation. In essence, cultural appropriation is the taking over of cultural practices that originated in one cultural group by another dominant cultural group. Cultural appropriation differs from cultural exchange in that it is based on power imbalances between cultures, with members of the dominant culture using heritage of the weaker culture in a way that is derogatory, reinforces negative stereotypes, covers up histories of oppression, disrespects the wishes of those in the originating culture, or fails to adequately compensate its creators for their creative labor. Prominent examples of cultural appropriation include the use of traditional clothing as Halloween costumes, the use of names and symbols representing cultural groups to refer to sports teams or other organizations, often in a derogatory way, and the use of traditional motifs in the design of clothing or other products. Both the hard and soft approaches to intangible cultural heritage protection seem to have potential for reducing cultural appropriation. Hard rules can give communities a way to seek reparations from those who have appropriated elements of their cultural heritage, for example by invoking a copyright in traditional motifs or techniques. This will be particularly relevant where the appropriation has significant economic value. Meanwhile, soft policies such as investment in education and promotion of heritage may lead to a decrease in the proliferation of stereotypes and prejudice against originating cultures and encourage respect for cultural difference. Thanks to these measures, those who would otherwise engage in cultural appropriation may refrain from doing so, and those who continue to do so may face increased public pressure to stop. Cultural appropriation is just one of the many issues that ICH protection frameworks may seek to resolve, but it demonstrates that multiple approaches may be effective in resolving a given issue. We'll turn now to an example of cultural heritage that has been the subject of an ICH protection effort in order to explore some of the considerations that go into such efforts and some of the effects that they may have. We've chosen an example that is relatively close to us here at McGill, namely the Inuit throat singing practice, known as Katajaniuk, and the effort that led to its official recognition as an element of Quebec's intangible cultural heritage under the province's Cultural Heritage Act in 2014. In fact, it was the first element of intangible cultural heritage recognized following the act's entry into force in 2012. In essence, the Cultural Heritage Act implements a policy-based approach, setting up an official register of cultural heritage and an advisory council, and allowing for the granting of subsidies to promote, protect, and enhance intangible cultural heritage. To better understand the importance of Katajaniuk to Inuit communities and the impact that official recognitions and other protection measures may have, we'll be speaking with Evie Mark, who is a renowned practitioner of Katajaniuk, as well as a storyteller, singer, filmmaker, and educator. Thank you for being with us, Evie. Thank you. First, can you tell us about your own experience with Katajaniuk? 
When were you first exposed to it? What inspired you to delve deeper into it and even to perform it for audiences around the world? Growing up in the north, in Iwuyivik, specifically Iwuyivik Nunavik, northern Quebec, I've always been exposed to traditional singing, throat singing, traditional activities. Because I'm also part white, my father is white, I grew up partially in the south as well. And when I returned to the north, I was about 10 years old, I had lost my language, my culture, after having been exposed to the southern life for uh, five years during my childhood. And that was challenging for me. Uh, I faced a lot of bullying. And so it gave me uh, determination. It was kind of like my one mic to be sure that, that I could use it as a way to heal. To prove to them, this is my identity. This is who I am. And in a sense, to prove to my bullies that um, I am as much Inuk as they are. And I regained my culture through my language, through singing. And throat singing was uh, part of it. Every time I would hear throat singing, I would get um, kind of like adrenaline or excitement, like my hair going up kind of thing. Every time I heard the elders throat singing. And one of the throat singers, uh, Litya Oudlaluk, who is now passed on, she's deceased now, and I thank her all the time. I asked her one day, could you please teach me how to sing that song? So she's taught me that one song. And ever since then, I didn't stop. I was about 11 years old when I started throat singing, and I haven't stopped since. Can you speak a bit about the place of Katajanik in the community? In what ways does it enrich the lives of those who practice it and those who encounter it as observers? And is its role today different from what it might have been in the past? Well, we always first have to understand where Katajanik comes from. It comes from, yes, the Inuit culture, but the Inuit culture was created by its environment. So Katachanil comes from the northern environment. We can imagine Inuit women who throat sang a long time ago, imitating the environmental sounds, animals and nature and wind and the river and so on, and people as well. If you can then imagine my grandmother's time, if it's minus 50, and your mother has a liter of oil and she knows that she can only use so much of that oil because her husband might be out hunting for a month. And so in order to forget about either starving to death or feeling cold and warm themselves up and also entertain themselves, throat singing was a brilliant form of playing. And then where it's really strong is in Puvernituk, Ivuyivik, Saluid, and in Kangsuk and Kangsuyok. 
it's stronger in the northern area where the exposure to the southern non-Inuit people coming in took longer. So a lot of the traditions remained and were practiced even when I was young. And after the non-Inuit, the missionaries and so on, once they came, then they were discouraged to practice their songs, their battle songs, their throat singing, and so on. All the songs and, and games that they did, they were discouraged and to the point where they considered it satanic. And to tell that to already very spiritual people, they were vulnerable to, of course, believing it. And so throat singing wasn't practiced for quite some time until we were born, because my mother's generation went to residential school or federal day school. And uh, of course, they were prevented from practicing their cultural identity. And then we were born where we get interviewed about throat singing or we get recorded and we get to do shows at the Place des Arts and travel abroad. And so there's huge differences in my grandmother's generation to my mother's generation and to mine. And we'll see what it's going to be for the next. Yeah, that's a big shift in a short amount of time. Yes, very. That being said, I guess if you had looked at the culture of the Inuit before contact with white people, with Southerners, it would have looked very strong and hard to imagine that it would disappear. But it did almost disappear. So mm -hmm. is it possible to imagine something like that happening again? Are there any threats that you see to the practice of Katajaniak? Or even if it's not disappearing, is it under threat of being changed in fundamental ways? Well, as I said earlier on, concerning noise and sounds and the environment, the sounds and the noises that my grandmother's generation was exposed to was very different. My grandmother can easily recognize an animal sound that I never recognized because I'm not exposed to that animal because we want to be sheltered from such harsh, cold weather now, or we don't want to be near a polar bear because we don't know how to hunt it. We're not as much exposed to the environment as we used to be, to the point where we can say, oh, we're going to sing the sounds of the river, or sing the sounds of the waves hitting the ice, and it becomes a concern because my grandmother's generation is passing on. And unfortunately, a lot of them were not recorded. So it's like a whole library that they bring down with them to, to Earth. So for sure, there is a threat. I don't mind the change so much because if a culture doesn't change, it disappears. So since our environment is changing, throat singing will follow suit. When I teach, I try and be sure that I'm teaching the right techniques and the right sounds in order to hold on to the old ways of throat singing. A lot of non-Inuit are curious about throat singing and they want to learn throat singing. 
So they're just mimicking throat singers. They haven't even grasped the roots and understanding what throat singing is. And for them to use it as entertainment or to make money out of it, that's just wrong. My grandmother went through traditional living and then her children had to go through an education system that mistreated them severely. And so we try and hold on to these roots through throat singing, traditional singing, games, love songs, and so on to revive that person within us that's gone through so much trauma. I understand if non Inuit want to help out and be a part of it and to learn about it because I teach Inuit culture. So for sure, I encourage non Inuit people to learn about who we are. So because we're neighbors, we're in Quebec. I come from Northern Quebec. I live in the South now, but I can see how the South and the North don't know each other at all. And we got to start getting to know one another. All of that I encourage, but for someone to use it and to sing it and to perform, that's wrong. Here's a good example. Inuit people were the best in operating a kayak, which is known as kayak today. And the kayak came from the Inuit people, but we rarely see anybody in the North using a kayak or somebody who took the Inuit patterns and started making parkas and amautics and saying that they designed it. And we can't let that happen to throat singing. And I can imagine how hurt my grandmother would be or my mother's generation would be if they saw that. When we say in our culture, when there is fish in the house, the person who's going to invite another person who lives in another house will say to that person, we have fish, come and eat. Or there is fish at our place. They would never say, I have fish, come and eat. That's a cooperative behavior. And I can see that concept is changing because there's more individualism. Like, it's mine. And I think that if we start believing in such values, then there'll be a threat to the true form of throat singing existence. Here, here's something I think it would better explain. I went to see the movie Moana with my three daughters. And after that, they kept singing the song. They related to that young woman who was fighting for her cultural practices. And I realized that we need to create role models to give them a sense of identity, a sense of belonging. And I realized the, um, the role that I have to play in that to give them that feeling of pride and honor. And so throat singing is very important because it gives me that key or the tool or the passage, whatever you want to call it, to pass it on to them so that they value and 
honor their identities. So I saw on your website that you actually performed at the ceremony around the official recognition of Katajaniuk in 2014 mm -hmm. under the Quebec Cultural Heritage Act. Do you think that that recognition has been helpful? Has it had any effect in countering some of these threats that you've talked about? Has it changed the way that Katajaniuk is viewed within the community by outsiders? Well, definitely got exposure. Probably tweaked some curiosity and interest even among the young Inuit population. I'm very happy that there was a report that was done on it. Now we have some information that's being preserved. Like I said, when my grandmother passed on, she forgot to tell me a whole lot of information. And so that report, I think, helps to dig a little deeper to ensure that it's preserved. I think it's a little bit too early on still. So far, nothing much has been done since. But if there was ever any, let's say, non-Inuit people, if they started to make albums out of it, then we could say, whoa, this has been practiced by the Inuit people in Nunavik for like 4,000 years. So in that sense, for sure, it gives it a legal protection. And that's, I think, very important. Thank you so much for being with us, Evie. Much of the work leading to Katajanik's official recognition was undertaken by the Avitek Cultural Institute, a nonprofit organization created in 1980 to promote and protect Inuit language and culture. To explain what was involved in that work, we'll speak with Louis Gagnon, curator and director of the museology department at Avatak, and Marie-Pierre Gadoua, an anthropologist and archaeologist who acted as a consultant for Avatak in the effort to achieve official recognition for Katajaniuk. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Maybe we can start with you introducing yourselves and maybe speaking a little bit about your work with the Institute. My name is Louis Gagnon. I'm the head of the Department of Museology for Avatak, but also Augmagivik, which is the art secretariat run by Avatak. And Augmagivik got that responsibility to carry on that designation for the Katajaniuk, the throat singing. And so I've been involved quite early in that file. After being involved with, with Avatak since uh, uh, 1989. I'm uh, Marie-Pierre Gadois, and I'm an anthropologist and archaeologist. When I was doing this research, I was completing my PhD at McGill University. Now it's, it's done. And my research was with Inuit, with the archaeology of the ancestors of the Inuit, working with the communities. So working with the present and the past, this is what I'm an expert of. So that's why I think we hired me is my capacity to really sit down with Inuit and really listen to them, give them space, give them room for what they want to say, exactly how they want to say it. And then I manage the analysis and the report with what they've told me without transform what they say. And how long was the process 
from that moment of identifying Katajanik as an aspect of Inuit cultural heritage to be protected to the recognition in the act, how long was that process? This was quite fast, in fact. There was a sort of a context of, uh, I would say, almost emergency to try that kind of process for, I would say, for the government of Quebec mm-hmm. as for Avatar. Because, first of all, we were invited to do something, to propose a designation, some kind of aspect of the Inuit culture that has to be protected. And this was new for everybody, and I think we were like a test for that, all the process of designation. And for Avatar, right away we are thinking about, okay, yes, the catatonic is something that we identify clearly as a good symbol of a tradition that tried to survive by itself. And also, for myself and my colleagues, we were like saying, yeah, but we don't know that much about the catagenic, so why we don't use that as a pretext to go further? When I'm saying short, it's only a few months, I think in four months, something like that, everything was prepared. All the requests and selection of the material to make the proposal for the recognition. And then the good thing is we got with that, that possibility to get the $10,000 to do that report or study uh, done by uh, Marie-Pierre. Quickly, we understood also something that was essential for both of us to get the testimony or the comment directly from the women who were practicing the uh, Katajaniak. Mm-hmm. So that was giving more credit to that study. Everything that I'm saying about Katajanik today, it's really important to say that I learned it all from the women. <laughs> so I'm carrying their voice today. I'm not going to be citing them every time, but I, I insist on that. I mean, I read a little bit on the work of my colleagues, anthropologists, who did a lot of great research about it in the 1960s, 1970s, because those past traditions are kind of forgotten. Parts of them, some details, some knowledge, have unfortunately been forgotten. So it was a great compliment. And I bring it in my report a lot, the context, the origins of Katajanik as it was recorded by ethnologists, anthropologists in the 60s. And I was bringing those information into my interviews with the women, asking them to reflect on it. I really like to play with all these kinds of knowledge, historical, anthropological, and the knowledge from the community, from the Inuit women, putting them into a dialogue. You spoke a little bit about this already, Marie-Pierre, but through your work, both of your work respectively, can you speak a little bit about what you've learned about the history of Katajanik and its significance to Inuit culture? Yeah, well, as I was saying, I, I discovered pretty fast that it's a game. It's not an art form. Initially, it's a game, and it is still a game nowadays, but you have to look for it sometimes because we see public performances often in the South here, let's say for the mm-hmm. Festival Présence Autochtone, for example, here in Montreal. I'm pretty sure we'll see them again this year. So it is an art form, but initially it's a game. And the women that I interviewed that do those performances, when they practice at home, they do use it as a game still nowadays when they learn Katajanik, but it has now taken a new form because of the public that is asking for it. The non-Inuit public, but also the Inuit public up north, they're starting now to really make a show out of it for the community. But then after realizing that, I realized that back then it was also 
uh, the elders were telling me, it was also some somehow a uh, performance that was made in the community. Like every evening, people would gather in the winter time to do some Inuit games, like competition of strength yeah. uh, between two men. The women also were into that. Uh, and the troll singing was part of that. So, but people were enjoying the competition. So there was a bit of an aspect of having an audience and then the game going on, but there's an audience rooting for one or the other. So um, going back and forth in time, you realize that both aspects are present, but in different levels. So that's what I, I learned about it. I really appreciate when some people make the difference between this was something more private than public in the past for many women which is not really the perspective that the youth or the young women, because that was not exactly their experience. It was more like in the uh, perspective of a competition. Mm. But in the uh, private sphere, they were more like for the uh, lullaby. Yeah. And that shows the reference, uh, the external reference of the sounds of the catagenic, you know, referring to a dog or puppy or whatever and bringing it into the, that relationship between the mother and the kid. So in that vein, we were interested about the official recognition in the report and the extent to which it's had an impact in Inuit communities. Has there been more funds to support the practice, more pride? Well, it's two different things. I think yeah. the funding comes from outside. So Ministère de la Culture funded this research, but there was no, to my knowledge, follow-up. We had some recommendations for, you know, we have to fund that kind of activities, this other kind of activity to keep it alive. I don't think the Ministère said, okay, let's do that. <laughs> Here's some more money. I don't know. You, you know more no, about that, so, we, so, as a, But I, you're yeah. right to mention that about the minister. But it's not only the role of the uh, minister to protect cultural heritage. And uh, I think for Avatak, we uh, try as much as we could to support the catagenic by inviting people to practice their catagenic on many occasions. It's just the expression of the consciousness that we have to do something. We have to decide for that. And for an example, I will say during the Northern Light trade shows in uh, Ottawa, the last two, we did some catagenic and I saved some budget specifically for that and it was really, really picky. You know, I want professional uh, people who will do the catagenic. Mm. So you paid a good amount of money to get them there. Mm. And uh, so I think it's a significant move. So yes, it's part of an effect of that designation, but it's very little considering the communities themselves. So we try to encourage also some uh, communities to develop their own tools. Like in Pavongtuk, uh, they were giving kind of class of catagenic, which was a good initiative. But you need money, you need encouragement to continue to do that. And often it's the personal decision of one individual and that person has other obligation and will quickly stop. It's a matter of leadership. You need to yeah, find the good lot. leaders who yeah. will do that and will have the, yeah. the time to do it because they're all yeah. working. Those women all have full-time jobs, so it's, yeah. uh, you need yeah. someone that will have a full-time job for that. 
part of the recommendations that we wrote is that initially the women were inventing their own songs and each woman, each family, community had its own texture, their, their own style, their own culture of throat singing. And in the history of Nunavik with the forced settlement in different communities, the flow of people and the flow of those cultural trends kind of stopped or it changed. It became those fixed communities, the 14 communities in Nunavik. Fifteen um, with Montreal. Fifteen with Montreal. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened is that in Puvenituk, there was one uh, leader who decided to revive throat singing in the 1960s. I think it's his sisters that were still throat singing in the private sphere or his family members. And then he decided to organize those workshops and those women became the expert that started to teach younger girls how to do throat singing. And they were so strong that they became the norm of uh, throat singing across Nunavik and even a bit in Nunavut. So it created a somehow uniform throat singing practice in Nunavik which is not bad, but it's not as it used to be. Women don't have the reflex to create their own song. They're just learning this repertoire of about 15 songs that they all know. But this is something that we recommended is that the communities have to create their own ways of keeping it alive, their own ways of organizing workshops, where, how, with whom, and to create their own style again. Mm -hmm. And to give the will to women to also be personally creative, to give them the room to do it, and also to give them the confidence. There is also another aspect that uh, I think we have to clarify. The report that Marie-Pierre did is in French. Yeah. So do you understand that all that knowledge is not really accessible for the Nunavimut? I think I sent uh, an electronic copy of the uh, report to only two Inuit who were asking for it. Okay. And for the rest, they were saying, yeah, but I speak English or Inuktitut. So for more than two years, I've been looking for money to do the translation. And we came up with a plan at Avatak that uh, maybe we need a summary that will cover the essential of the report, accessible in English and in Inuktitut. And then we'll organize a conference to speak with the, the, uh, the women who are practicing or would like to learn about the Katajanir and take that as an opportunity also to develop maybe a sort of a guild or an association of women who will practice Katajanir because it's part also of the recommendation that we have to find a way to put a price, a value, economic value on that, because the women who are performing down south, especially down south, if they want to be paid for that, what kind of money they should be paid? Because there are different requests, and most of the time, when you have that kind of a request, the people will say, oh, we are sorry, we don't have any money, but we would like to get that. And you it know? would be very empowering for the women. Mm -hmm. Uh, another question we, we'd yeah. like to explore is that cultural appropriation is obviously a colonial phenomenon that continues to impact Indigenous communities around the world. And we're wondering if you could speak to whether this has been an issue for Katajanik, and if so, how? I've had different answers to that question from different women because it was in my interview grid for the research. What do you think about non-Inuit women who want to learn Katajanik? Some were saying it's not right, it's just for Inuit. It is cultural appropriation and we should not encourage that. 
and others were saying it's okay uh, we can teach them just like that if they want to try it because it's a way for us to share it disseminate it yeah. but it has to be in a structure you have to say that it's just for trying and it's just for a game and it's an experience but I don't think anyone said that a non-Inuit would be accepted to become an artist, a performer officially. This is a no-no, <laughs> I think. But trying it out. So for that, I had some yes, it's okay. But I've had others that say no. But everyone respect each other's opinion on that matter. So when I was asking to a woman uh, this question and she would say no, for me it's a no. And then I would say, oh, it's funny because I heard other women say it's okay. What do you think about the other women who say it's okay? They always answer, it's their choice. If they want to teach, I'm going to let it go. I mean, I'm not going to fight for it. But personally, I am not going to teach a non-Inuit. Mm -hmm. But it's okay if other Inuit women want to do it. I respect that. Because mm -hmm. this is something that I found was interesting, that the designation really is... It's the Quebec Cultural Heritage Act. So the designation is as part of Quebec's cultural heritage. There's not a distinction between different groups within Quebec. So was there any worry on Avatac's part or in your studies that this would yeah. become a way for uh, Quebecers to take over? You opened the, the door to appropriation uh, and I addressed that issue in my report. Exactly. I was saying we have to be careful about that door not to be open. It's a recognition as a Quebecois thing. It's, it's a way to make it visible, known, but we shall protect it from being stolen, appropriated by non-Inuit. So you, for that kind of situation, you count on the experience and intelligence, or I would say also the people, you know, like how many women who were recorded and they didn't want to get their things publicized, disseminated or whatever. And even if this was for the government of Quebec, because this was part of the requirement on the report to give some documentation, visual or audio. And when we came to that point, most of them, they didn't want to get their video or sound published on any uh, government website. So this was interesting to see that resistance. Because in the past, for yeah. many cultural practices, Inuit, as other indigenous people, have been s stolen uh, like yeah. that, uh, parts of their culture. So they're now afraid of that, and I understand why. But sometimes we need to reassure them, you know, and say, mm -hmm. I understand, but think about what are the good sides of sharing it. If it's in a appropriate way, let's say, you share it, but with some restriction. There's a way to do it. But I remember that it was an issue with the Ministère de la Culture. They were kind of shocked that they yeah. couldn't put yeah. it online. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I cannot change the consent form. They all said no. Yeah. The protection that was granted under the Cultural Heritage Act, in practice, what kind of protection would this give to the practice of Katajanik? For example, if it's online somewhere and it's being used in a way that the person that put it online or the community that it comes from doesn't want it to be used, mm. what can they draw on from the Cultural Heritage Act that will help provide protection? I think the protection is the equivalent of zero, but not zero. Because the protection comes from a soul other ways sometimes, like documentation. You see, because of this effort of working on the designation and getting a little bit of money to work on the knowledge, for me, this is a part of the protection because we are more equipped to protect it. 
you see, I'm not answering you in terms of there is no police who will say that's not good that you are uh, uh, doing the. Um, um, so from a cultural appropriation standpoint, yeah. there isn't really much there, but maybe is it safe to say that the value in the recognition and in the that, Cultural Heritage yeah. Act is facilitating a space to revive or at least bring more awareness? Yeah. And I think it's important. When you don't pay attention to something, then that is really dangerous. When you have that awareness about we are losing that skill at mm -hmm. the moment that mm -hmm. something can survive. And this is something that I observed throughout my interviews, at least in the sample of women that I interviewed, the ones that are fighting the most for throat singing are women that have a personal history of fighting for their, like, um, mit, uh, mit their cultural identity, I guess. Their cultural identity. Whereas the women in Nunavik who are really comfortable with their identity yeah. and uh, they're really into the culture every day, um, they take for granted. And it's okay for them because they're not losing it and they're transmitting it to their daughters and so on. But there are other women in Nunavik who are not in it every day. So for those women, we need the ones that I mentioned earlier, Nancy Saunders, Evie Mark. And they're saying it in the interviews, throat singing helped me find my roots as an Inuk. They said it. By learning to throat sing, I learned how to be an Inuk because they were raised in the non-Inuit part of their families. So they're the ones who will really fight for it. But uh, I, it think, I think both situations reflect the reality in terms of yeah. the society. The 15 village of Nunavik yeah. now yeah. makes the portrait of that society much more complex than it was not long ago. 1961, there was the last family living in an igloo in Pavongtuk. 61, it's not long ago. Mm -hmm. yeah. A lot was lost, but in fact, a lot was transformed since that moment. And so it's to the uh, Nunavimut to decide what they want to keep from that past. And Avatak is an instrument in that. I'm not deciding for them. I'm used for my knowledge and the network that I have. But the decision to be involved in the designation was taken by our board members, mm -hmm. well, all in with. We saw in our research, other governments around the world have taken a lot of different approaches to protecting intangible heritage. Some have much stronger, hard legal rules, some involving intellectual property type protections, some where it's even enshrined in the Constitution. Do you think that having something like that would be more beneficial to protect Katajanik? Well, I think that the main problems, issues with Katajanik are more about how it is transmitted in the communities, which has nothing to do with the law and rules and regulation mm -hmm. of, of intellectual property. That's just a, a plus that is added on top of it towards non-Inuit trying to use it. Mm -hmm. But the real heart of the problem is the transmission in the communities. So I don't think it would really, it will not hurt, but it wouldn't be the main action that I would think of to really help to protect. Because when we think about protecting, it's not just protecting how it is now, it's about keeping it healthy and alive. Healthy in a sense that it will evolve with time and with the minds of people and how their culture is evolving in modernity. Protection talks to that also more than just being a law on it. The law should be about giving more funding to culture. 
I agree with Marie-Pierre. I think it's more a question of how does our society, Quebec society or Canadian society, want to support the health of that knowledge and practice. And it's not healthy when it's so much disturbed that you cannot recognize it. One challenge, I, I believe, for the catagenic is this kind of adjustment to be done with the attraction of the South for the Northerners. The day of the designation, during the official thing, a group of performers, you know, uh, were using the beatbox. So beatbox or hip-hop. We got such a strong reaction against that by some Inuit leaders. So that was interesting, but in the meantime, you know, you don't need any law to protect that. This is just a reaction of, it's so new, we don't want to go there. This is not our tradition. Yeah, so yeah. the real meaning was it's not our identity. Yeah. So I found that very healthy because this was in an yeah. official context where the people wanted to be so proud of their the, the genuine, perception. Yeah, yeah, the genuine the, aspect of yeah. it. But the, there was something interesting when I interviewed Akinisi Sivuarapik. She's of, let's say, the younger generation and her grandmother, Mary Sivuarapik, I also interviewed her. She's one of the pillar of throat singing in Povernetuk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Akinisi was telling me that initially when she was an emerging throat singer, she was doing uh, workshops with Blueprint for Life. It's an organization that do hip hop in uh, communities, not just uh, native, but uh, uh, low income youth across the North America. And they went in Nunavik to do some hip hop. It really worked well and some uh, hip hop, but also uh, breakdance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So throat singers started to get into that and to experiment with hip hop and beatboxing and throat singing. And Akinisi was into that. And she got scolded by her grandmother for doing that. And she said that she had to explain to her grandmother that you need to have that to drag the attention of the youth to the tradition sometimes. And that once you get their attention, you bring them into learning the traditional way correctly in a workshop with an expert or an elder. And then once they get the basis of the practice, once they're good at it, then they could start to play a little bit and explore with other music because sometimes they mix trotzing it with musical instrument and not just the hip-hop and beatboxing but also other kind of music even with the uh, symphonic orchestra yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. with the permission of the troll singer they get into those collaboration and it's amazing what they're doing to my point of view mm-hmm. but to some inuit women they're like ah, i don't like it it has to remain genuine just two women singing but they accept that the others explore it's like it's it's not my thing but i respect her mm-hmm. for, for doing what she's doing For people who are listening, and I mean, I think this is maybe a sensitive question, too, because I think it's important to be making sure that direction is coming from communities. But for people who are interested in supporting these kind of processes of recognition of intangible cultural heritage in legal frameworks, how can we as professionals support that and be a part of that process? What are the needs there in your experience in your work? Well, I'm, I'm just thinking about the recommendations that are in yeah. our report. I think it's all there. It's getting more uh, funding for paying Inuit people to teach the younger generation, to uh, help them organize uh, a guild or an association of throat singers. They really need that, not just for logistics but or, or to get paid for uh, their performances, but also as a way to empower them and make them proud of it and make it more official and healthy. It's all linked together. 
the way I understand your question is that I'm thinking about on a practical point of view for people in the museum who would like to get a performance of Katagenia. They have to assume that they are dealing with something precious. Those women are like the athletes who are performing something quite difficult and so you have to give them the best condition to do it and also maybe prepare your public you know do something that will show that it's not just for fun that we have them and we can extend that way of paying attention to the catagenic to so many other type of our cultural heritage mm -hmm. it's an attitude about the cultural heritage uh, not to take it not granted mm -hmm. so law can't do it by itself the heritage act, the designation, this was a starting point. Yeah. But I that's think so. it. That's yeah. it. It's like the spark from where start something. Yeah. You cannot solve all, all the problem, but you can start from somewhere. Start yeah. here now. You yeah. know. Yeah. And it's urgent. Uh, in fact, I'm proud that Quebec got that way to uh, open our eyes about the intangible heritage mm. because now we have that in front of us. It's an and argument. It's, it's really uh, an yeah. argument that you can bring out every time you need to talk about truth singing. I've been using that often when I wanted to talk about how important it was a research that I did. So it is really useful for those matters as a argument, a pretext also to start something, to do something. Mm -hmm. So it's not just an act, it's a catalyzer. And all that is about cultural identity at mm. the end. And for those women who have been struggling about their cultural identity, they found something through catagenic. It's part of the beauty of protecting that kind of cultural heritage. It's not just the health of the catagenic, it's the health of the communities and of the women. It. I also work a lot with the homeless Inuit in Montreal and whenever I had the opportunity to ask the women, do you troll sing? Like, are you able? Yeah, but I haven't been troll singing in a while. And then I asked them, do a little example for my team of street workers. And they would do it and I could see the sparkle in their eyes and their like tears of joy, you know, of something they don't think about doing when they're having very, very hard times in the street. You don't troll sing, you know, but being asked to do it. So I could see how deeply rooted it is, not just for their identity, but for their well-being also. Well, thank you both so much yeah. for you're taking welcome. the time to talk with yeah, us. You're welcome. So we've seen that the mechanisms established by countries and international bodies to protect intangible cultural heritage are far from perfect. Despite efforts to be more inclusive, there may still be significant differences between these mechanisms and the protective measures that individual communities would choose for themselves. Nevertheless, it's clear that progress has been made in the past few decades. Intangible cultural heritage has come to be recognized by a large number of states and organizations as an important part of cultural identity that is worth protecting. Even if the official recognition of Cotagenier as part of Quebec's cultural heritage hasn't ensured its survival or its immunity from appropriation, it certainly seems like a step in the right direction. You've been listening to Law Among Peoples, a podcast by Intergentis, the McGill Journal of International Law and Legal Pluralism. This podcast was written and produced by me, Tobin Lippold with the help of our podcast committee. Working with me on the second interview was Amelia Philpot. 
Our theme music is also by me. To continue the conversation, head to our website, intergentis.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-G-E-N-T-E-S dot com, where you can find our current issue on tangible and intangible ownership in the international sphere. Thanks for listening.